We are Chris and Beth Bruno, and this is the Walking With Podcast. We lead a team of brave and brilliant story work counselors and coaches around the country, all committed to helping you come alive. Join us as we explore the sacred landscape of the human heart at the intersection of theology, psychology, and ministry. month we've been in a series on relationships, walking with those who are not always in the mainstream. We talked with Ellen about mental illness and Chris Flippin about sexual abuse recovery. Today we're joined by our new race and diversity specialist, Sandia Oaks, to talk about walking with transracial adoptees. You can learn more about Sandia over at restorationcounselingnoco.com slash Sandia Oaks, and of course, anything else you need to know about us on the same site or visit our digital laboratory site at RestoryLabs.com, the space to come alive via courses, memberships, webinars, and more. Here's our conversation with Sandia. We want to start off by hearing a little bit about your big why, what leads you to do the work of restoration. Yeah, thanks for asking. I love the idea of restoration. I love seeing things put back together. I love watching my own story, the broken pieces of my own story um, that have been shattered, um, slowly being put back together, seeing healing happen in my own journey makes me want to see that happen and believe that for other people in all different contexts. The role that you play here at Restoration Counseling is uh, you are our race and diversity specialist. And that is a, a new role that is a part of our team. And I can't say uh, how excited I am that you are here and that you are helping us grow in the area of understanding race and understanding diversity and how all of us, regardless of our backgrounds, have spaces of growth uh, and um, spaces to understand even more. Now, uh, one of the things that you are doing here is you are uh, facilitating a transracial adoption group. And I'd love to unpack that a little bit. What is that? But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about your own personal journey in uh, with regard to that? Yeah, definitely. I am a transracial adult adoptee. I was adopted from India when I was a baby. And I came to the U.S. Uh, when I was one years old and lived in the Midwest pretty much my whole life so far. And what transracial adoption actually means is that um, it's a blending of, it's a blending through racial backgrounds. Um, meaning in this case, I am a person of color and I was adopted into a home and a family that was white and into a town that was white and into a school that was white. And so I didn't grow up seeing people who mirrored me or who looked like me or who affirmed that brown was good or being South Asian or Indian was good. And um, so there's a lot of brokenness and a lot of frustration that has happened and is happening in my own story around transracial, being a transracial adoptee. Mm -hmm. Now, 
you you say that very kindly. Um, the people around you weren't affirming that being Indian or being South Asian was good. Uh, was it a little bit worse than that? It was a lot worse than that. Yeah. Um, I remember like from a really young age, my adoptive family. So I didn't really know a lot about being adopted. Um, there wasn't a lot of conversation around it in my home. And even at school, we didn't talk a lot about it. But the things that I heard from my family who had adopted me were things like, you're not our real daughter. Or if we could send you back, we wish we could. Mm -hmm. Or you would have had it a lot worse in India. And so there was a shame of, I could have had it worse than where I was at at that moment. And I carried those pieces uh, just with a lot of, of shame and a lot of wondering of, why did this family adopt me? And like, what's my point of existence if my birth parents didn't or couldn't care for me? And now this adoptive family didn't want me. Then I think I carried a lot of like confusion of where my place in this world was. And as a child, you're feeling, you're experiencing those things, you're absorbing those messages. And yet it wasn't until really well into your adulthood that you began to make sense of that, right? And kind of Mm -hmm. come into understanding, embracing, and loving your heritage, your color, your, like all of those things. Can you tell us just a little bit about that awakening for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually happen to be uh, in, so, okay, I'm going to backtrack here. So what I have seen from my own experience and other experiences of transracial adoptees is that there's usually two big kind of awakenings. Um, The first one is I'm adopted. Holy cow, like what does that actually look like and mean? And it's the awakening to the grief and the loss. So that's like one piece. And then the other piece is uh, if they're a transracial adoptee, it's the awareness piece of I'm not white. I am a person of color. What does that actually mean? Where, what do I need to learn about my cultural or birth cultural background? And so there's two big things that happen for transracial adoptees. And I've seen many, like the girls that I'm leading on campus, uh, that happening at the same time for them. And it's just earth shattering. For me, I had those two things happen in separate seasons of my life. Um, and I think that's the kindness of God that it didn't happen at one point because I don't know that I would have been able to withstand that. Um, the awakening of my ethnic identity happened actually in Fort Collins. Um, I was there for a conference um, with the ministry that I serve, and I remember sitting in Moby Stadium and hearing Dr. James White say from the middle of the stage, the Bible does not try to erase ethnicity like we tried to erase ethnicity. And I remember feeling that to the core of that was for me, like that was a message for me and I needed to do something with it, but I wasn't sure what. And so I remember just chewing on it. And uh, during the break, I went to the restroom and um, I'd come out and I was, um, washing my hands and I looked up in the mirror and I saw this in the reflection, this long line of white women. And I just had this like awestruck moment that I'm not white. I'm not one of these white women and I'm brown and I'm an, I'm an Indian woman. 
And it was a lot to digest and to understand. And I remember walking out of the bathroom past then, and I just took some time to just uh, process and pray and uh, invite the Lord into that and say, like, what do I do with this? Why now? What does this mean? How do I sort through this? And it was, I would say, really clumsy. (laughs) It was pretty messy and clumsy in that I didn't really know who to talk to, how to engage in this because it was so new to me and I hadn't heard people talk about it before. And so I started doing, the only thing I knew was Googling like South Asian women or Indian women or adoptee um, culture. And I started um, meeting people uh, from Indian background and started asking them lots of questions. Just my curiosity flew through the roof of asking questions because I just wanted to know more about where I came from and a piece of me that was with me, but I wasn't awakened to yet. That's important to understand those two parts, right? That there's, there's that realization like I'm adopted and then an awakening to the, the ethnic identity. Um, as you're walking with people who are adoptees, what are some of the things that you're, you're working on with them? How is there this integration, awareness, uh, kind of like you said at the beginning, putting pieces back together for them? What is the work that you're doing with them? Yeah. So some of it starts with just listening and engaging in their stories and inviting them to share, like, where have they been wounded? Where have they seen God show up? And for these girls, the ladies that I've been working with, um, they haven't had a collective space to be able to share and even say the words, yeah, I have felt that too, or I've experienced that same thing. So it's even providing this sense of community of you're not alone in the experiences that you've had. When you go to the doctor and they ask, what's your family history? And you're like, I I don't know because I'm adopted. And a reminder of you're disconnected from your birth culture, from your birth family, your first family. And then even hearing these things that the girls share about like class projects where you have to do your family history. And just, they're like, I haven't really been able to tell someone, yeah, this is a hard assignment to do because I don't know the answer to these questions. And so first of all, it's listening, it's engaging those pieces. And it's like kind of hearing like, what are the same things that are being mirrored in each of the stories? And then there, I mean, there is also an affirmation that's been happening in our group. Uh, It's been really sweet to see each of the girls just affirm um, the beauty on the outside and the inside of each other and how God has designed them, that there wasn't a mistake in the way the Lord made them. Um, And then some of it is we're touching on racism right now because that's definitely, I mean, it's been going on for more than 600 years in this world, but like right now it's just so in the face of specifically BIPOC people of color and so we've been talking about where, what are you experiencing in your own context, on campuses, at home, in other places, and how can we sit with you in that? And what do you need to hear? And what do you need to be reminded of? And I think, yeah, they all, we all, including myself, have our own experience of racism and experiences of like the ways we've been wronged and harmed in our own ethnic background. And it's like a repairing of oh, that shouldn't have happened, or I'm sorry that no one entered in there. And so can we go there together and can we invite the Lord and invite each other to affirm, to strengthen 
and to call out the goodness and the beauty that's actually there. Mm-hmm. This might be a stretch, but I, I would imagine that racism would feel even more unbearable for a transracial adoptee because yes. you're in a white world, typically, for the most part, that so doesn't get it. There's no shared experience. So whatever is experienced is so lonesome on top of the actual racism to hold that all by yourself in a home that doesn't get it. Is that accurate? There is some accuracy there for sure. Um, It makes me think about how in my own journey, I've had to use the racism in my story to prove that I'm a person of color, to prove, which is so twisted. Mm -hmm. I've used the harm to show who I am um, previously. And it just feels dark and it feels twisted. And that's not what it's meant to be. And so there's a confusion there's definitely confusion of uh transracial adoptees experiencing racism but then also being like you said being in a white world a white community and so no one being able to help them process through what does that actually mean to them i can share a story of um being uh in seventh grade i had um some guys in my school uh, wrote this note and um, had the N-word uh, written all over it and a picture of the KKK. And it said, uh, go back to where you're from. And I remember taking that note to my teacher and my teachers, um, they were angry, they were grieved, but they didn't really know how to engage in the conversation further than um, like this shouldn't have happened, I'm sorry. But there wasn't an ongoing conversation of how that actually sat with me. And then unfortunately, I went home and I remember telling my adoptive parents and I just remember my mom being like, well, you're not black anyway, so get over it. It's not a big deal. And I was like, wait, this is a big deal. Like this is, but I had no one to affirm that. And so that has been one of those stories um, of trauma in my journey that definitely has held a lot of weight. And I really wish I would have had someone to sit with that little girl to be able to help that little girl uncover like, this is not okay. And one thing is that they're, they're misinterpreting your ethnic background. And then secondly, no one's sitting with you and saying, like, how does this make you feel? And I, at that point was um, one of two uh, kids of color in my school at that, at that age group. And so um, the, yeah, the racial trauma in a white space, in a white school, in a white world is complex. Mm-hmm. So you're, you walk with people who are tr- transracial adoptees. What would you have to say to transracial adoptive parents, right? Because there's two sides of this experience, right? So what have you done? What would you say? What is this realm of the transracial adoptive parents? Yeah. Well, I very much honor and value that there are three sides to a triad. Um, There's the birth first family, there's the adoptee, and then there's the adoptive parents. And all of their stories and all of their voices matter in this conversation. And um, I actually have a lot of friends that I've had the honor to walk with 
as they've adopted their kiddos uh, domestically and internationally. Um, and I have a lot of my friends' parents asking me questions, a lot of friends asking me questions about uh, how to engage in this conversation, whether it's racism or uh, how to do school projects and the things that they are wondering because they don't know who else to ask. And I think having lived through my own experience, I'm only one experience. I can't speak for all transracial adoptees or all adoptees in general, but I can say like, it's been a sweet journey to resource them, especially as it comes to a kid called my, uh, a kid on the playground called my kid, this name. And it's been really sitting in my child, like, what would you say? And so it's helping me, it's me helping them engage in that conversation with tenderness and kindness and honesty rather than just blowing past and pretending it didn't happen or not saying any, yeah, not saying anything at all. Um, I see my friends asking me like, how do I tell them about all the racial trauma going on in our world? What, what do I say? Because these little black boys are mirroring the black men that are being shot and their lives are being taken. Like, how do I talk to them about this? And um, I can't speak from the black experience, but I can say like this conversation needs to be had and they need to know that they're, they're safe as much as you can keep them safe, but that this matters. We need to talk about this. I also think like when I talk to my friends who have adopted, I've asked them like, what type of representation is in your home? Like, what are the books on your bookshelf? Who are you listening to? What kind of music? What kind of celebrations are you doing? In my childhood, we didn't have any authors of color in my home. I had not, I didn't even have Indian food until I was 23 years old. And so, or meet someone who was Indian until I was 22 years old. And so it, it matters to have other relationships and the movies, the TV shows, however you go about it, this child needs to have mirroring in order to know that that God didn't make a mistake, that their brownness or their blackness is good and um, that it matters. Yeah. I love that term mirroring, basically, you know, giving, giving the child a, an experience of who they are by seeing others. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And we know in child development that mirroring is actually a neurological experience as well. It's not just a relational or a racial it is a neurological one. And when I would imagine that transracial adoptive parents provide that kind of environment like you're describing, it actually helps that child make sense. It helps that child have a, you know, the, the neurological pathways formed of their internal identity matching their external identity. Um, that's really important. And I think you're right. It really does matter. We're headed into the month of November, which is National Adoption Month, and first Sunday of the month, right, Orphan Sunday at most churches, and it's a time of the year that there's actually discussion around adoption. There's actually some awareness, but I'm curious how that feels. How does it feel to have one Sunday at church when adoption is front and center? What does it feel like to have a month, you know, set aside and then maybe silence? Yeah, yeah. I get, so it's both and. It's like both the excitement that there's a month dedicated to this. And on social media, if you're in the right groups, like you'll see, you'll learn, you'll experience a lot. 
Um, but then I also get bummed too. And I, I'm a little like just one month of this, like talking about it and just one Sunday in most churches or in some churches, even, um, orphan Sunday, where there's this big call to like adoption matters, foster care matters. We need to step up as the church. And then you're right. Like there's silence. And so it does matter. It matters to the children. It matters to the parents. It, It should matter because it matters to Christ. It matters to him. It's so dear to his heart. And so um, it's both and feelings of I'm glad that there's something, but I wish there was always more. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the time also where a lot of adoptees get the opportunity to share and to have the microphone and um, get to say that this is what is great. This is what's hard. And I think that's, that's pretty significant. I don't know that people really know that there's a hard side to adoption. I think there's this pretty bow that people tie on this rescue mentality of adoption's all good, but there's tremendous grief. There's tremendous uh, loss um, and a lot to navigate through, through all the different seasons of adoption um, for both the parents and for the adoptees. And I think that that's something I want people to know more and more that there's space and there's places for that grief and for that loss too. Mm -hmm. I imagine, you know, I feel sensitive to not wanting to exploit any person's story, even yours, right? Where we made sure to ask how much of your own story do you want to share? And so for, for churches, that balance of wanting to amplify the voice of, of an adoptee and not wanting to exploit. Um, can you give some wisdom around that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, one of the painful points of adoptees is that so much of their story has been exposed, has been shared without their permission. And there is just such a tenderness already in this child, this baby's story that they did not have control over. And so for other people to, for parents and other people in the community to share someone's story, it's just so exposing and so insensitive and unkind. Um, And there's even trauma around that because not every adoptee wants to be known as an adoptee. I think sometimes I watch other adoptees want so bad to fit that they don't want to even share that they're adopted because they already feel the internal, I don't fit. And now it's being, it's being named outwardly. And now there's like a whole nother layer. And so I would say one for churches and for community, uh, for people who are going to be doing orphan Sunday or participating, ask permission, of course, ask permission and give the freedom for the adoptee uh, to say no. And even parents, like, give permission. Like, don't just put your child through something because you want your story to be shared. It's their story, and there's a tenderness to it and an honor that you don't want to rip away. And then also, I think, give permission to the adoptees to share whatever parts they choose to share. Maybe they only share a little piece of it, and that's okay. I have seen adoptees who have felt the pressure to share more of their story than what they were ready and then people start asking a ton of questions and don't have boundaries. And it really, really wreaks havoc on the adoptee's soul and their heart and their mind. And I think just going back to so much has already been taken and lost and to just walk with sensitivity and kindness through that. 
appreciate your lived experience turned into a real gift um, for others. I'm glad you're with us and helping all of us pursue more restoration in our, in our own stories of, of race. And yeah, I just can't wait to hear more from you. So I have a funny question, a little bit of a shift in direction. In the last months of, of doing life on Zoom, what is the funniest, weirdest, craziest situation you have found yourself in while on a Zoom call? That is a great question. One of the funnier moments I've had on Zoom is I had put some uh, squash in my oven and I had turned it on and forgotten about it and I was on a Zoom call and all of a sudden I panicked because I smelled something burning and I was like, my squash, it's burning. And I quickly ran to the kitchen and it was smoking. <laughs> and uh, I came back and it was burned and my friends were like, are you okay? And I'm like, yep, yeah, just burned my, my lunch, it's fine. And so that's, that's one of the things that I've had. And so it's always with fire and burning and it's always those stories. <laughs> There's definitely a theme there. (laughs) We will not expose you in that theme that you can reveal in your own good time, but there's something with you and fire for sure. (laughs) Definitely there is. Thanks so much for joining us today. 